But real comfort never, ever leaves out the truth. And God loves us enough to give us the truth. And here's what he says. The most kind thing that we can do is tell people what's going to happen. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is All Things New with Pastor Barry E. Fields. Father, it's my prayer today, as we read and study your word, that there would be room in our hearts for the one who came to fill them. Help us to see Jesus for who he is, for what he's done, and what he will do. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord to the prophet Isaiah and to the people of Israel, comfort ye. Comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. You may know John McCain as a United States senator, the congressman from Arizona before that. You may agree or disagree with his policy positions. But one thing I think we can all commend him for is his status as a war hero. Shot down in Vietnam, he spent five years in the prison camps there. The Vietnamese found out at some point during his stay that he was actually the son of a very important admiral in the U.S. Navy, and they offered to release him as a propaganda strategy. And McCain refused because he didn't want to be a pawn in their system. And he talks about what he had to endure. Several of his bones were broken when his plane went down, and instead of resetting those bones, they didn't allow the wounds to heal properly, and so he was in constant pain from that. He was deprived of of food. He was often put in places that were not comfortable for shelter. He was often shackled. But they said that the biggest challenge for him while being over there, if you can imagine, five years long, was the the isolation of it all, where they would put him alone for days and days upon end without seeing a face in an effort to break his spirit. And he talked about in particular where where he felt like he, he had just gotten to the point where he was without hope, and he, and he didn't know that if he could go on, and typically when the, the guards would change out, they, they would beat him or, or smack him or do something to him at the interchange. And he said on, on Christmas Day, one of those years, the guard who was on duty didn't do that to him. They'd assigned some torture to happen to him, and it didn't happen. And he wondered what was going on, and he saw that in the dirt of that cell, as he was being moved around, the The guard motioned for him to be quiet, and he took out his foot, and in that dirt, he made the symbol of a cross. And John McCain said, in that moment, Christmas Day, seeing the kindness of a stranger through the power of the cross, he was able to receive hope once again. He was able to live on. You know what it's like to be without hope? the burdens and the weights and the cares of this world have you down. Sometimes that happens with discouragement. In fact, it's one of God's, Satan's greatest tools to use against 
human beings, great men and women of God go through great seasons of doubt, discouragement. Sometimes that prolongs into depression. We live in a world that tries to hide that discouragement, tries to hide that depression through medication. Sometimes we do that through abuse of drugs and alcohol. Sometimes we try to get an edge and release through pornography. Sometimes we overconsume and we eat everything in sight because we think that'll somehow get us comfort. We spend hours in front of the television. We do whatever we can in order to get away from that, that, that hopelessness that's just always lurking. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there right now. Elijah knew what that was like. He had been on the mountain. He had seen God move in tremendous ways. That altar had lit on fire when 400 prophets of Baal couldn't do it. He had gotten in the face of Ahab the king and said, unless you repent, you will perish. You will be eaten by the dogs. Jezebel the queen had said some choice words to him. And Elijah had gone from being the prophet of the Lord to being a scared man. He'd stopped listening to the voice of God and started listening to the voice of man. And he went away for days. God had to go get him back. Jeremiah knew what that was like. He preached for decades on end. Nobody came forward during the invitation. Nobody made a profession of faith. Failure as a preacher in the world's eyes. God led him on. Israel sure knew what that was like. They had once again rebelled from the Lord. They had gone against the ways of God. And if you really look at the first 40 chapters of the book of Isaiah, almost all of it, with the exception of, of chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 that we looked at last week, has to do with the condemnation that's come in Israel's way. They, they had tried to find their happiness and their source of strength in everything and everyone other than God. And whenever you do that, you have to realize that Satan will always leave you hopeless. God will always leave you hopeful. If you make the choice to follow Satan, it is always going to end in bitterness and disappointment and resentment. Israel just couldn't learn that lesson, and sometimes neither do we. And so God had spent the first 39 chapters of this book telling them of the condemnation that was going to come, telling them of the destruction that was going to take place. And in the middle of all that, it seems like the worst place to put this, he said, comfort the people of God. Comfort those people. Give them hope. He would say to us, give them comfort in these latter days. Scripture describes our God as a God of all comfort. Jesus says, when I go away from you, I will send the comforter, the counselor, to come to you. And there's something about in a time of discouragement and a time of despondency, just to hear the word of God read out loud. Sometimes you'll see this in, in in secular shows, sometimes you'll see this in different churches where someone will just read the Word of God. And you hear those words of comfort, you hear those words of joy. I don't know about you, but it does something to my heart, does something to my soul. And in the middle of the worst season of Israel's life, God says, comfort ye my people. Tell them that this isn't the end, that her warfare is ended. The Assyrians are on the march, and they're mean. They put your heads on spikes. They're not messing around. You look at some of the artistry that they put together, they did not mean to bring you joy. Babylonians are coming. 
They're going to take away the temple. They're going to take away everything that you hold sacred and you hold dear. And then when you're done with that, they're going to take away your children. And you're not going to see them again. How do you have comfort? How do you have joy? How do you have hope when the world around you, as you know it, seems to be falling apart? He says on top of that, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. That is the holiness of God will be put on display when his people are having that as the last thing on their minds. And Isaiah reminds us as we experience this all-encompassing glory of the living God that our hope rests not in our present circumstances but in our future kingdom, in a kingdom that cannot be shaken, one that has no end. He tells us that our God will bring down those mountains and he will raise up those valleys. That which is crooked will be made straight. That which is rough will be made plain or smooth. Those who have not seen will see. Those who have not yet heard, they will understand because my word never, ever returns void. It never, ever comes back empty. And he tells us the way that this will happen, the way that hopeless people will be given hope again is through the prophet that they sent. Israel thought at one point in their history, after 400 years of silence, that all the prophets of God were dead. But God says there is this voice of one crying out in the wilderness, crying out in the desert place, in the place of isolation, that John the Baptist will begin preparing the way. There was a great highway in the Old Testament that was the, the trading highway. It was the, the main route for everything in the Middle East. It was known as the King's Highway in the Old Testament. And that King's Highway, he says, will be done away with. And now there's going to be a highway for our God. The mountains will be exalted and the, and the valleys will be exalted and the mountains and hill will be made low. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. It will be revealed in nature. Whole reason that sun shines bright is to give glory to the living God. It'll be revealed in covenant that God always, always keeps his word. In a word where, where news is fake and truth is relative, the word of God is just as sure and just as true as it has ever been. Because our God gives hopeless people reason to hope again. His glory is revealed through the birth of John the Baptist. You remember the circumstances. Zechariah and Elizabeth are there serving blamelessly before the Lord. The scripture tells us that. And then on the most important day of Zechariah's life, the one day in his life, he had a chance of one out of 18,000 of getting into the temple, getting into the holy place as the priest of the Lord. On that day, the angel of God decided to make an appearance and said to him, you will have a son. Zechariah is so shocked. He's so dumbfounded by all this that he doesn't believe what's happening to him. And the angel looks at him and shuts his mouth for nine months. And when he opens his mouth again, nine months later, Zechariah blesses the Lord for it. He says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 67, Zechariah, his father, John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies 
from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. God gives hopeless people reason to hope again. He always keeps his promises. He always completes his word. We need to be reminded of that. And then when that voice cries out, it says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist is not the guy that you want to have sit down as your therapist, as your counselor. He doesn't seem like a a likely candidate. He's not a very seeker-sensitive guy. He wears camel's hair, eats locusts and wild honey. He's a guy that's kind of in your face. It's It's a strange word of comfort, isn't it? But real comfort never, ever leaves out the truth. And God loves us enough to give us the truth. And here's what he says. The most kind thing that we can do is tell people what's going to happen. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if you repent, it's on God. If you don't repent, it's on you. You repent, God takes on those sins. God takes on the blame. God takes on that guilt. But if you don't repent, you take it upon yourself and you condemn yourself already to not believe in the name of the Son of God. True comfort comes with truth. It's a strange kind of comfort, isn't it? Listen, these are uncomfortable times to be a believer in Christ, aren't they? We don't make up the rule book here, do we? People say, why do you believe that? Why do you believe exactly what you believe? We're bound to believe what God says. And if I have a choice between reading the opinion paper and the newspaper and whatever the new view is coming out of the universities or reading the time-honored tradition of the Word of God, I'm going to stick with the Word of God. I like our chances a lot better than everybody else's. Strange times in which to live, in which if you are a believer in Christ, there are going to be some challenges for you because we see sex, we see marriage, we see creation, we see work, we see worship, we see the entire purpose of our lives as different than what the world tells us to live. And and notice the difference here. God never makes you comfortable. That's not his goal. Got a lot of Christians sitting around in lazy boys today letting everybody else do the work. If that's you, you need to repent. God never makes us comfortable, but he does comfort us. He says, be of good cheer. He says, it is I, be not afraid. And the last thing God wants you to do with your life is spend it all in fear and anxiety and in turmoil, wondering if whether or not what God said is true. So you have to take him at his word. You have to believe what he says. 
And the most comforting thing that John says, the most hopeful reality that he gives us is when he looks upon Jesus coming his way, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and and unloose. And when Jesus comes to him, he says, Baptize me. John says, I have need to be baptized of you. And Jesus says, John, baptize me. Let the others see what will happen to me, what will happen to them. And the Spirit of God descends like a dove, my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's our hope. That's our comfort. That's our joy. And then he comes along and he says strange things to us. These are strange times to be comforted. He says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And some of the Pharisees wonder, is this Jesus or or Hannibal Lecter? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Isn't this Joseph's son? But to those who have eyes to see, and those who have ears to hear, and those who have hearts to understand, it is a wellspring of life to them. It is comfort in their soul. It is rest for their weary heart. God gives hopeless people reason to hope again. And often when we read these stories from years ago, we have trouble identifying with Israel and the warfare they face, or maybe we have trouble identifying with the events of Israel for 2,000 years in the New Testament era. But the Scripture tells us that this story is not simply their story. It is actually our story because we also were without hope. We also were without God in this world, condemned until the very end. But then in Romans 5, Paul reminds us that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And also we have access into this grace wherein we stand and we rejoice in something. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God, knowing that tribulation works experience and experience works hope. And hope makes not a shame because when we were in our sins, God shed abroad the love of his spirit into our hearts so that we might cry out to him for God has sent his son. To die in our place. Friends, we have the greatest hope that the world will ever see. We can't keep it to ourselves. And so what do we do with this hope? How do you in a hopeless world live hopeful? How can you be helpful with your hope? I think first of all we have to take comfort in God and in God alone. If you are looking to anyone or anything else other than God to be your source of comfort and your source of joy and your source of strength, you are placing a burden on that person or thing that they were never meant to carry. The only source of joy, the only source of comfort, the only source of hope that we have is in what God has done for us. And so we have to trust on Him. And we have to constantly evaluate our lives. Am I placing more joy in my bank account? Am I placing more joy in my kids' accomplishments and sports? Am I placing more joy and more dependence on my spouse than I ought to be? Am I trying to get from them what I can only get from God? You have to take that into account. And then not only must we take comfort in God alone, but we also have to be people who are willing to give comfort to others. Because if you think about it, what is the opposite of hope? Is it not despair? Is it not discouragement? I'm convinced sometimes that we in the church forget what it means to give hope to others. And you really have to evaluate your life. When you go to others, are you a person who always discourages or always encourages? 
Do you always say something negative the first thing? <laughs> well, I got a problem with somebody. If all you do is come forward and give problems, you're the problem. You have to say, am I being a person who discourages or am I being a person who encourages? When I walk in, do other people walk out? It might tell me something. Instead, we ought to look for ways to give people hope. We ought not to take things for granted. And frankly, we need to do a better job of that as a church, encouraging people. Not just assuming that they know, but really telling them that. And giving them the greatest hope of encouragement in the Lord. He tells us that that light is coming. That light exposes. That light can't cover up. That light guides us. He reminds us that in a world where so many sexual allegations and conspiracies are coming out the last couple of months, we saw that even within this past week, that light exposes. Whatever's done in secret will be exposed openly. Whatever's done in the darkness will be brought about into the light. And so we have to live as people who believe in hope. Have to live as people who believe that God will one day make all things right. So what is the Lord saying to us in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 and Luke 1, John 1? He's telling us that even in the midst of our worst possible circumstances, if you are a believer, God is working all things together for your good. He doesn't do anything that ultimately will not be for our good and for his glory. And so if you find yourself constantly in despair, worrying about your circumstances not working out, worrying about your family, worrying about your kids, we need to be people who are taking that to the Lord. We need to be people who are in prayer, asking him, reminding ourselves of that coming kingdom, because the Bible tells us that, in fact, we have a blessed hope. It is the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us that he might purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works, that the whole reason we have this hope is so that we might give glory to God and that we might share that hope with others. And is there any greater message of hope in the Christmas season than the story of God's birth? Who are you sharing that with? And if you're not sharing that, are you a person who really believes in hope? Who's God laying on your heart? God gives hopeless people reason to hope again. Because of that, you and I must live in the light. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at barryefields.com.